Hello, and welcome back to Drafting the Past, a podcast about the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and my guest this week is historian Dr. Anna Zeta. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Anna is an associate professor of history at Virginia Tech, where she is also the founding director of the Food Studies Program, as well as the author of two books. Her first book, Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, won a James Beard Award. And her most recent book, U.S. History in 15 Foods, was published earlier this year. Incidentally, reading that book inspired me to plant corn in my home garden for the first time ever. So, you know, stay tuned on that experiment. She is also a co-editor of an anthology called Acquired Tastes, stories about the origins of modern food. In our delightful conversation, we talked about everything from putting together a writing outline to taking a metaphorical or literal wander through the woods as part of the writing process. Please enjoy my interview with Dr. Anna Zeta. My career as a writer certainly is a longer one and a kind of more interesting one in some ways than my career as a historian. I think I first started thinking of myself as a writer in college and in a little bit of a backwards way in that I was trying as much as I could to apply for any scholarships that I could find. And one of the ones that someone I knew had gotten at the university where I ended up going, which was WashU in St. Louis, was this Nemirov Writing Scholarship um, named after Howard Nemirov, who'd been a faculty member and writer there. I kind of thought, well, I'm not really a writer, but I'll apply for this. And I got the scholarship, which was really exciting. And then once I got it, it pulled me into this really amazing network of people at WashU. So I had to take a weekly writing seminar with other writers. We had to attend all of the kind of visiting writer speaker series, which were poets and fiction writers and creative nonfiction writers and in the really strong MFA program that they have there. Um, and then I had to get a writing minor as part of the as part of the scholarship as well, which is not something I probably would have chosen. And yet it pulled me into this um, not just set of you know conversations and skills that I developed, but really as an identity. I remember my summer after my freshman year of college, I worked at Interlochen Arts Camp in in Northern Michigan, and there we had to like choose what our art was in order to kind of guide our students. And I had never really thought of it before, but I said, well, I guess. I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a writer, like that that was the art that I both thought of myself as belonging in, in by then and had cultivated an identity as. And I think that that grounding, even when I was, I was a biology major then and much more rooted in the sciences, I think having that identity as a writer helped remind me and pull me into the directions of the humanities because I wanted to write. I wanted to pay attention to language and be in conversation with others who were thinking about storytelling. And I think I had a sense that history was a discipline in contrast to some of the other social sciences that I was also interested in that really made space for that. I would say as I entered graduate school and did a PhD in the history of science at the University of Wisconsin, I think some of that attention to writing fell off in ways that I have been trying to reclaim since, either just because of the kind of spaces of conversation and the seminars I was taking, it seemed like deprioritized in ways that I kind of wish we had talked more explicitly about. I mean, the writing at that moment felt much more functional, like how do we get words on a page? How do we develop arguments? And less about how do we sort of take pleasure in the writing process? And I think that pleasure is something I've been trying to reclaim as I think about more recent projects. Yeah, and then we'll get into some of this, I think, later, but in some of the projects I've taken on um, after graduate school and in starting my career, I've definitely been thinking about how to remember that early identity as a writer and not just as a scholar or historian and to think a lot about audience and how writing 
is such a direct path into thinking about who who our readers are and what kind of impact our work might take and how intertwined all of those are uh, identities as writers as kind of public scholars as people who whose writing hopefully matters in the world let's talk about the practical stuff <laughs> what when and where do you do your writing i would say this has changed a significant amount over the course of my career and letting myself notice that i need different things at different times has been um a useful practice i for the last few years have been writing at home a lot and it's become a pretty deep need for me is to like feel very comfortable when I'm writing, like to be literally in soft clothes in a soft space, sometimes at my desk, sometimes like on a couch with a down blanket over me. And something about letting some of those physical discomforts go has felt really valuable to letting some of the writing intellectual or emotional processes come out. And I found it really hard to sit in my office on campus. I can do like teaching related stuff or programming or event planning or, you know, emails there, but somehow writing feels increasingly linked to comfort. So uh, yeah, and, and I've also felt like since I've, I have elementary school aged kids and I definitely don't feel like I have enough control over my time to carve out certain times of day. I think this has pretty much always been true. So I tend to use, I do the Pomodoro 25 minute kind of method of writing. And I often just set a goal with certain number of Pomodoros a day. And wherever those 25 minute chunks can be found, sometimes if I happen to have two hours, I can do them all at once. If I want to do four other times, it's like one in the morning and one on lunch break and one after the kids go to bed or, you know, it's that kind of frenetic pace. <laughs> I'm not sure I recommend it, but it's definitely felt much more in line with the realities of my time for the last uh, several years or I mean, many years, I guess, than, than before. Yeah. And I think that those are all not necessarily I'm sure they'll change as my life circumstances change, but in this moment, those yeah elements of comfort and fitting it in where it happens are are pretty important. How do you organize yourself? How do you organize sources and notes? What's your workflow like? Yeah, I um have gotten increasingly organized about writing, and in ways that I've actually been trying to dig back into older folders and try to understand how did I even write before I had this very rigid method. <laughs> but lately, and with my latest book, um, U.S. History and 15 Foods, which had you know 15 chapters plus an introduction and epilogue, very kind of segmented and organized in terms of needing very specific content in each chapter. Maybe that kind of shape of the project is part of what pushed me in this direction. But I started a very convoluted system, but though it has a lot of clarity to me, I've been using this tool called Omni Outliner which for anyone who um, uses Scrivener, which I've also started using recently, my system, I think, recreates a kind of low-tech version of Scrivener. So I use Omni Outliner, which is just a really simple software program that was recommended to me in graduate school. It really just has the function of allowing you to expand and contract and subordinate and create hierarchies of ideas in Omni Outliner. So I have always two Omni Outliner documents and two Word documents that I still write in as my structure. One is my Word document of notes where I literally just write everything I encounter. And I, and I try to literally write everything in there. So either I copy and paste if it's a digital source or I type in sometimes many pages worth of text into these documents because I find that process of having everything in one place really, really helpful, both for processing it in my head, thinking about its meaning. And then also having a doc, a one place where I can always find everything source-wise if I'm ever concerned about where I got something and didn't document it well. Then I create an Omni Outliner organized notes kind of outline. 
where I literally read through my entire notes document, which can be hundreds of pages for each chapter, and try to pull based on themes into organized themes in Omni Outliner. Then I open up another Omni Outliner document and I try to take all those themes and pull the relevant ones into some kind of writing outline that now isn't just random themes, but organized by similar content or an argument that flows. And then once I have that outline in my second Omni Outliner document, I tend to open up a draft document in Word. And by the time I write that, it really, I don't write as, I don't write a whole bunch of different drafts, at least not like a zero draft. I really, by the time I write my first draft, it feels at least like a a middle level draft because I've been doing so much of the organizing and thinking and I have a really neat outline in, in Omni Outliner that I then um, turn into text. And then by then it's a really fun phase of writing because I feel like so much of the you know, mental organization has happened in these in these software documents. It makes it a little bit robotic or formulaic at certain stages of that process of really having to put every word on that note document and then drag every one of those words into an organized space. But I found it to be a system that really mimics what I think my brain wants to be doing and um, allows for the tools to sort of mirror that process. So once you reach that sort of middle draft, what does your revision process look like? I find it, yeah, incredibly helpful to have other people read my work. I think that we lose such perspective on our own writing by the time we've been in it, in the in the documents um, and material for even a few weeks, that having someone else help us identify the holes and, and even help us to, I find that I always articulate my argument most clearly when someone else has read my work and then the, and I ask them to ask me this question. So so tell me what you're arguing here. <laughs> and in that verbal delivery, I almost I sometimes like audio record myself as I do it or ask someone to take notes because having a specific person ask me after reading the work and having to then say what the argument is, almost always I find that it comes out more clearly and more succinctly than what's on the page. Um, and I hear that from other people as well when they're pressed to say something out loud in a writing group setting, it's often better than what's on the page. And so I think that that process of conversation with others, of having an external audience take in what you've said and mirror it back to you, uh, so much clarity comes from what's unclear, what's what else do I need to add here? What's superfluous? How, where do I need to cut? So I've, I've relied on so many generous readers and colleagues and friends throughout my career to help me move from that kind of first set of drafts to the next stages. Um, And I think that that communal part of it, where we get out of our own heads and out of our own computers and into conversation with, I mean, ultimately we were all writing for others. We're writing for some readership, whether it's a narrow one or a broader one. And so having that reader feedback early in the process feels really critical to me. So your first book, Canned, and then this most recent book, U.S. History and 15 Foods, are quite different, both in terms of scope of, of time that you cover and also even sort of tone, style, uh, the approach. How was it different writing these two books? I think there were a lot of differences. Canned certainly was my dissertation book, and there was a lot of revision that happened before its publication. But I think I think the writing of a dissertation, as I reflect, you know, even a decade later on that experience, comes with so much baggage, at least for me it did. There's so much of a sense of proving oneself, of, you know, writing for your committee or for your advisor, of a very insecure for me sense of like, 
how my work might matter or whether anyone will read this or what am I even doing this for? Um, and I don't know how universal that feeling is to the extent that I felt it, but I think that most of us feel something similar, that there's this sense that we haven't yet found our position or place in this field. We feel like we're supposed to be an expert about something that we don't yet feel experts about. And so I think canned for, I mean, I think it has a lot of strengths, but I think that when I read it now, it does read to me like writing that has a, both a kind of narrow audience in mind and a kind of proving itself <laughs> a voice in mind as well, trying to, you know, trying to carve out a little niche of territory that felt like a new set of contributions that I was making, building on lots of scholarship and work that others had done, but trying to sort of carve out my my territory in this space and, and show that I think I was also very concerned in that book with doing what I thought food history could do, which is bring together lots of kind of subdisciplinary perspectives. And because I was in a history of science, medicine, and technology program, was also very involved with environmental history work at Wisconsin, was also then engaged with consumer history and food history, obviously. There were all of these separate literatures and separate fields that felt like they had to come together and that I needed to do a lot of explicit work to show why they all belonged in one book, while also trying to show some kind of mastery about, about these all these different fields, which obviously couldn't have <laughs> couldn't have mastered. So anyway, I think that that book reflects all of those emotional processes. And I guess I do think that writing is always a kind of psychological and emotional process and not just an intellectual one. And so it, it had a kind of narrowness of scope, a kind of depth, deep attention to primary and archival sources and a kind of desire to prove something about the value of food history at the nexus of these fields, which, you know, came together well enough. I still, I still, you know, like the book, uh, even as it reads to me as a relic of a different kind of Anna. I was going to say, I want to jump in for <laughs> readers and say, it's a really great book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think it holds up. I think it's mostly my own reading of it that sees whatever I'm trying to say about about all of these background things going on in, in my brain about what the book was doing. But I do think, yeah, it came together and it obviously laid the foundation very significantly for all the work I've done since. I think it pulled me into a space that um, I felt like I wanted to keep exploring in. And um, it did, it won a James Beard Award, which also, as far as like writing goes, I think really boosted my confidence. I think uh, I still don't entirely understand the process or or how that book was received by that particular kind of food media um, lens of, of judges who, who, who chose the book. But I think receiving that award and, and having a sense of this writing doesn't have to simply be for some kind of smaller history scholar audience and that there's takeaways and values here that, you know, people who are interested in food more broadly or just in history more broadly could also engage with. Certainly set the, set the stage some for this book, U.S. History and 15 Foods. So this book, is much more tied, I think, to my increasing sense of wanting to speak to broader audiences, to think about how we teach history and how we teach food and how we, in general, scaffold knowledge for others. I was just looking at my, my second grader brought home some kind of you know famous Americans study sheet that she was going to have a test on. And it had, you know, Everybody from Martin Luther King to Helen Keller to Christopher Columbus, all on one set of pages. And one of the things that struck me most was how none of the um, 
None of the people or descriptions of them had any dates or even eras associated with them at all, that they seemed entirely out of context, such that my daughter, other than things we talk about at home, really didn't know that like Jackie Robinson and Benjamin Franklin were not around at the same time, interacting in the same milieu. And I was like, whoa, this is how history education starts, is this like second grade level total lack of context and total removal from everything else that shaped why these people were important in their time. And I think it translates to the way I've found teaching a lot of undergraduate students that they come in with a lot of sense of like back in the day or it used to be with really no sense of how those textures of different times and eras shape what they're learning. So U.S. History in 15 Foods has a lot more U.S. history, kind of what you might think of survey context than certainly than canned or other scholarly history books. And it's in part because I think most of us, even scholars in the field, certain eras of U.S. history, I think we kind of lose a little bit of the context of how can I tell this story against the backdrop of what was really happening in those moments and why this particular food mattered at that time. So yeah, it has a lot more kind of background information, you might call it, but I think background information that's critical to the story itself. And it it does something much broader. It tries to kind of make make an argument and a case for, um, you know, how, how we might see all of U.S. history differently if looking through the lens of food. And of course, you mentioned scope. It goes from pre-colonization to the present. Uh, not all of, you know, not all of those are areas I'm an expert in, but trying to really tell a kind of continuous story throughout these changing periods, um, whereas Anne focused largely on a much narrower kind of around the turn of the 20th century and in the years before and after kind of time period. So I, I want to come back to the new book, but first I want to talk briefly about Acquired Taste. So you were, you were a co-editor on this wonderful anthology called Acquired Taste. And I know, I think from hearing you and your fellow editors talk that you were really interested in making sure that this book reached a broad audience and not just an academic one which was really successful. Helen Rosner, the New Yorker food food writer, had the wonderful things to say about it. And it's a fantastic anthology. How did you work to accomplish that goal as editors? Thank you for that question. Yes, I think Acquired Tastes very much fit in between Canned and U.S. History and 15 Foods in terms of pushing forward my desire to think about audience and writing. And I worked with two co-editors, Ben Cohen and Muki Kadekel, on that book, along with 14 or I guess, uh, 11 others amazing contributors who were part of that process. And from the beginning, we really, the book came out of conversations that happened at the Environmental History Conference about how much we wanted to bring together food and environmental history conversations for people kind of in the food movement, for people who um, had really important contributions to the food movement, but also often weren't rooted in a clear sense of history. Um, And that that conversation with that audience required an attention to the stories we were telling and a real desire to think about about storytelling. So we actually hired a writing coach um, and consultant, Helen Betje Rubinstein, who is a writing coach who works with a number of academics now, and everyone should check her out. She's wonderful. And we brought her in for a weekend with uh, most of the contributors and the summer of 20. 17, 18. Uh, I, no, I'm losing track. But, you know, before the book came out, before we had, everyone had a first draft by that weekend. And then Helen had read all of the drafts of this book. And I think hearing the responses of most of the participants after the end of that weekend and how kind of life-changing it was to be in a space where writing was the center of what we were talking about. And Helen brought really 
traditional, but also really new ideas about the writing workshop and how we think about characters and scene setting and speculation and filling in gaps in places where we might not know. I think as historians, we tend to want to have, you know, 100% of our primary sources lined up before we even begin to try to create a sense of a time and place and how we might borrow some of the skills of fiction and nonfiction writers to narrate the past. And I think that working really closely one-on-one with Helen and then in small groups as we gave each other feedback, not just about content, but about writing, felt like so freeing for so many of us. And I and a lot of the contributors have continued to talk about that weekend as being really pivotal in their own relationships to writing and to storytelling. And it, maybe it feels, it feels obvious to me now, but the idea that there are people who are experts in telling stories and writing, namely, you know, writing coaches and people with degrees in English or MFAs, whose knowledge we should draw on, that we can draw on, that there are lots of great books on writing, not just historical writing, but writing in general that can inform the way we think of ourselves as scholars. And uh, in my later work with Helen and and others who I know have worked with her and other writing coaches, I think having someone who's reading your work, not just from inside your discipline, but and not just outside your discipline in another scholarly field, but from people whose attention is to the writing and and what it feels like to meditate there, to leave room for conversation and thought about writing and the writing process and some of the emotional and psychological dimensions of it that I mentioned as well, a kind of writing therapy that I, I think that the, the best writing coaches do as well, feels to me like a new, at least for me, it was a new way of thinking about my writing process. That's fantastic. It seems like an opportunity that so many, so many of us would love to have. Were there common issues that came up? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was in the way that so many of us, as I think back to the first conversation we had at that workshop where we all sat around, was both a kind of lack of confidence in our own ability to write. Not just, I mean, to write, yes, we all, we came in, the word writing can capture so many things too. You know, we were good at like putting words on the page in clear argument ways. But as far as feeling a kind of liberty to tell stories and to think about what arc and narrative flows are and where we begin and end our stories and how there are models for doing this. And obviously there are many writers, historians who experiment with all kinds of new and interesting techniques that we, you know, some of us, we, we learn about in whether we, you know, in kind of random ways. So a kind of confidence to own our identities as writers, to recognize that that's valuable, definitely felt really important. And again, it's kind of a psychological moment more than a writing issue. I think also we struggled. One of the things we did during the workshop also was had everyone do a kind of seven minute presentation to a public audience about the, about our chapters in really pithy ways. And it, we, we, you know, we encourage everyone to choose like one image and like one main point to do our seven minutes on. And that was so hard, you know, and again, this is, you know, well, well well-known writing advice, but being able to choose the one thing that you really want to say and using the rest of your uh, narrative or analysis in support of that one thing and not getting lost in all of the interesting side paths that we all want to talk about, but often really take away from the central thrust of what we want to convey in our writing was, I think, a common challenge. To talk more about how her work comes together on the page, I asked Anna to read from the opening to chapter seven, Jello, from her new book. Here's Dr. Anna Zeta reading from U.S. History in 15 Foods. 
1902, the first magazine advertisement for Jell-O appeared in the pages of Lady's Home Journal. No boiling, no baking, the ad read. Simply add boiling water and set to cool. These instructions underscored the fact that this was a new product, promising a dessert quite unlike any Americans had experienced before. The many Jell-O ads that flooded the American media scene in the years to follow referred to a wide range of the new product's strengths. It was pure, dainty, colorful, adaptable, available in a range of flavors, easy to prepare, easy to digest, good for the sick, good for children, accessible for the rich and poor alike, produced by happy American workers who never had labor troubles, and endorsed by leading home economists. But one thing that was rarely mentioned in these ads was what Jell-O actually was. A rare 1909 recipe booklet tiptoed around the question. It said, the base of Jell-O, the chief ingredient, is crystal gelatine, delicate, white, translucent, and pure and clean as falling snow, combined with extra fine granulated sugar. The fruit elements are added by the nicest of modern scientific processes in one of the finest food factories in the world. Even more unusually, another booklet from the 19-teens delved farther into where that snowy gelatin came from. Starting from the cartilaginous parts, this pure food product is obtained by a long series of boilings and filterings in the form of a delicate, colorless, and transparent jelly from which every trace of grossness has been removed. And of course, the cartilaginous parts referred to parts of animals, of cows and pigs who had been slaughtered for meat production. As the meatpacking industry grew in size and sophistication, it found the key to its profitability in selling its many byproducts, gelatin among them. I love this opening. You can see why this book will have wide appeal right in it. But I was struck, so this book draws on a lot of secondary sources just by the nature of the scope. But you also use a lot of primary source research when I looked at the notes for this, this opening. There's a whole lot of primary sources. So I'm curious to know how you how you put this together, what goes into writing this? Right. So the book definitely tries to do some more kind of summary work in trying to pull together a lot of the secondary source material that looks both at the particular foods. So each each chapter both tells the story of a particular food like Jell-O and then uses that food to tell the story of a particular era, like the progressive era, largely in um, the case of Jell-O. And so I was trying to both bring together the secondary source material largely on that era. Most of, sometimes there was a book or a, a good secondary source material on the food itself. Uh, in many cases there were actually, but more often the secondary source material was trying to really get a feel for that moment, what the large scale changes and forces were, and then trying to weave that particular food into those, into those main themes as a way of illuminating them through the food. But often the foods themselves had less had less attention drawn to them in secondary literature, or at least less relative to the way I was trying to use them to tell the story of that time. And so this is especially where a lot of primary source research came in. And um, like with this Jell-O opening, there's so much amazing and interesting Jell-O, you know, the company that produced Jell-O, the Genesee Pure Food Company, was really embedded in eff efforts at advertising, for example, because of its need to create taste for this new product. Uh, recipe booklets, which were common across many processed industrial foods at the time. So trying to use primary sources to think about how these foods were known, how they became known, how they were used, how, how they were stigmatized or celebrated in different eras 
uh, really did give valuable insight into, you know, yeah, how these foods were seen. And one of the big kind of messages of the book and in talking about food in general is, I think, both how food becomes really easy to ignore, both in our present day, because we are all just taking it in and, you know, trying to fill fill our hungry bellies and move on with our days. And in historical literature, often we don't have as many sources about food, about what daily, you know, meals look like for average people, which makes it sometimes harder to attend to. At the same time, I think when you look at a lot of primary sources that have to do with food in the past and present, there's always so much going on. I mean, there's always a lot of other values embedded in the discussions about food. And I think looking at those primary sources really quickly gives you a sense of how meaningful the foods were, even if that wasn't known or highly attended to by the people who were engaging with those foods in the time. And I think it's certainly true of the present in the way that foods are so much so laden with meaning um, in the way we talk about them, even as those meanings feel kind of incidental to whatever people are saying about the food that they're talking about. That kind of gets at my second question about this, which is that I have to imagine that one of the hardest things about writing a, a book on this scale is figuring out what to leave out. There's just so much you can include. But at the same time, also including enough detail that passages like this are totally engaging and fascinating. How do you navigate that? How do you decide what to leave out? It was a challenge. I think even in the initial phase of writing the chapter outline and coming up with the book proposal, figuring out, I mean, first of all, which foods to include itself was a huge act of omission, you know, in terms of like so many other foods that could easily and perfectly tell stories within any moment in American history. So that decision of sort of like, which of these foods am I going to emphasize? And and a few of them certainly changed as I started to write and felt like I needed some kind of balance or other embodiment. And then when it came time to focusing in on the 15 foods that I do end up working with, yeah, I mean, going back to what I said about, you know, identifying the one thing, figuring out what each of these chapters was really about. And I would say, even now looking back on it, you know, I think some chapters do this better than others because some there were just so many things that the food needed to do. But for a lot of the chapters, figuring out, okay, if I had to say like three key words about this era, what were they? Like what would capture the phase of, of US history that this chapter is talking about? And then what is going on with this food that similarly captures those three key words? And all the other interesting details about that food that also tell us something about it, but that aren't contributing to those keywords that make up the one thing, putting them kind of explicitly, like in my Omni Outliner outlines, I have like an unused heading and I very explicitly drag a lot in there and it makes it easier than just deleting it or, (laughs) you know, maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe it'll end up being useful later. I can still search for it. But kind of the physical act of dragging and dropping details or pieces of information or arguments that don't cohere as the writing goes on into that unused tab really helps me with the physical feeling of sorting and sifting and winnowing it down to what I really want to say about that era and food in this book. And like I said, it's interesting to look back on the chapters where I think I was, where I just felt like I had to fit more in. And I still think they're valuable chapters, but there's a bit more of kind of a a feeling of jumping this way and that and a little bit less of like, okay, how does this all come together? Whereas other chapters have much more of a strong focus. But even that, I I hope that this book will um, 
with its 15 chapters, I think it, it makes for useful comparisons across different chapters of kind of what is happening and how the arguments come across and how the stories come across. And it is a super teachable book. And we've talked before about how that was one of your goals for this. I already want to teach a U.S. history survey with this book as a text. Yay. <laughs> and as I was reading it, it's so generative that I was like thinking of the final assignment for the class while I was reading right, it. So right. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> and I know that undergraduate education has been really important to you. At, at two programs now, you've helped to create a food studies program and you're a wonderful teacher yourself. And I'm curious, how do you see the relationship between your writing and your teaching? I think they are really tightly intertwined for me. And I think about teaching quite expansively, both in undergraduate education and graduate education and sort of public talks that I give and the kind of questions that I hear people put forth, both about history, but also about food. You know, like a lot of basic lack of knowledge about where our food comes from, about nutrition. I mean, for all kinds of legible reasons that lots of um, people have written about. But it makes me think about the importance of writing in this area. I say this even as I often spend a lot of time feeling like there's so many more important things I could be working on. But I do think food matters. I think that it is a really accessible lens into a lot of really important and heavy and consequential factors, both in our past and our present. Everything from you know environmental issues to race and class issues to just questions of justice more broadly to you know, systems of agriculture and, and government. So all of these big systemic issues that are really hard to get a handle on, I think often for me feel more legible through a particular lens, many to choose from, but food being one really useful one. And so in the way I teach, in the courses I teach, in the ways that I advertise the courses and think about conveying to students what the takeaways are, and same, I would say, in my writing, in trying to say, you know, trust me as you go along for this ride where we go far afield into all kinds of areas and sometimes tricky and difficult things to understand that we come back to this center point of food as something that anchors why this matters. And I think that, yeah, we've at here at Virginia Tech, where I am now, we've been um, trying to build a kind of a food studies or food and society related minor that's going to be quite cross college with the College of Agriculture and other partners to emphasize to people who do think about food a lot, but from the kind of science, food science or nutrition or agriculture side of things that these more humanities inflected ways of thinking matter. And then to humanities students or, or those who don't really think about food to convey that they're, that the things they're interested in can also come together in this like most fundamental of areas. And so, yeah, I would like to think that the teaching and the writing both are fundamentally trying to use this topic as a tool for opening us up onto kind of some of the most critical issues for students and humans in general to think about into our sort of uncertain future that that we're all headed into. I want to ask, you mentioned earlier the importance of getting feedback on your work and you know that in the acknowledgments to U.S. History and 15 Foods, you talk specifically about the, let's see, the write, historian's writing group at Virginia Tech. I'm always curious to know how people's writing groups function. So can you tell me a little bit about yours, how it works? Yeah, this one, um, yes, Thwig for short, and it's been an institution here for a while before preceding my arrival at Virginia Tech. And it's a full, in idea, it's a full departmental writing group. So everyone in the history department and sort of historically minded colleagues from other departments as well are invited. And I, I ran the group for two years. So I was really embedded in it for, for my first two years here. And it's really a group that 
sends out a piece of writing monthly and then anyone who wants to come, which is usually, you know, maybe a third of the department would come to any, which is about 10, 10 to 15 people here, um, would come to, oh, you know, lunchtime conversation during my two years, they were on zoom. Uh, we've resumed meeting in person over lunch and then have a really wide ranging conversation with feedback from historians who are studying all kinds of different eras and topics that helps move a specific piece of writing forward. And these, you know, have typically been book chapters or conference papers or articles in progress. And I do think running that group for two years helped me think the last semester I was doing it, we instituted a number of changes to try to think about what serves writers best, everything from starting out the session where everyone went around and spoke for a minute or two about where they were in their own writing process of whatever, whether that was, I'm not doing any writing right now because I'm so caught up in this other thing, or I'm struggling with this particular source, again, to kind of create the sense of community around writing. This is not just about one person's semi-finished product, but instead a process that's a work in progress. Also, have experimented with different kinds of feedback and encouraging and learning how to give feedback. Um, this is one of the things that our writing coach for Acquired Tastes, Helen, talks a lot about in her work on writing is, I think, a lot of the ways that we think that feedback is useful often sets back a writer's goal and how to ask questions that really help pull out what that writer wants to do and not what we think they should be doing, which is a very tricky balance, especially if we're used to grading or, you know, marking up students or people who whose work we have a bit more of a authoritative relationship toward. So anyway, I think there's a lot to think about in how writing groups function. And I'm really, I'm really grateful that we have this departmental one. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversations about where it heads next. But I will say yes, I mean, again, a, a redundant piece of advice that I'm sure lots of people have talked about here on the show and elsewhere, but finding writing groups of different kinds and scales. I think when I was writing canned I was in three different writing groups, <laughs> and they all kind of offer different functions, both in terms of what the people's backgrounds were, how close I was to them in terms of feeling like I could cry in front of them if that's what was needed versus feeling like I had to be more formal in spaces, you know, write people who could really give me very physical, specific information about where I might find an archival source versus people who had no idea anything about history or history of food, but who could help me think about, you know, setting a scene. So finding different writing groups with different functions and identifying what those functions are and understanding that not all writing groups can offer all the things that one needs as a writer or as a person, I, I think is advice I want to remind myself of too, because I think it's, it's, it's easy to fall off of that, cultivating those relationships. In addition to finding a writing group, what, what's some of the best writing advice you've ever gotten? I think one that I keep coming back to that increasingly seems really wise is actually advice from my dad, who was a who was a professor of forestry. And um, he, you know, as a kid, I knew that every day he would walk to work through the woods, taking sometimes up to two hours each way to meander and lie on fallen logs and take up his time. And I remember him saying that his department head was often like, Zeta, what are you doing? You know, you're coming in late. You're leaving early, taking hours in the woods every day. Why aren't you working? And my dad would say, doesn't he realize that is the work? That is when I'm thinking, that is when I'm doing the work. And it, he always felt it so ridiculous that his department head didn't have this sense of what it means to write. And I never quite understood what he meant until, you know, until I became a writer and scholar myself, realizing how much of our work, our writing, our 
thought process, the connections that happen in our brain have to happen in more unintentional or that's maybe the wrong word, but less direct words on page and how much of it is about making connections and thinking about the stuff we're reading and giving ourselves space, whatever that looks like to process. Um, Walking in the woods obviously is a great way to do it, but people find other ways and not feeling guilty that the writing process sometimes has to include time away from our desk, time for our brains to make connections. That when you, for me, at least when I feel stuck and just can't write, that I shouldn't push myself, that I should get up and go for a walk and that these things are not separate, you know, that I think there's a lot of neuroscience research that suggests that that is actually how ideas form is when we give space for the brain to do its work. And so acknowledging that, honoring that, letting that feed into my own relationship to how I pace my day. Um, I think, you know, this goes along with a broader advice just about productivity culture and trying to give ourselves space to step away from sense of what, how we waste our time. And so I, I really like that advice, just sort of making sure we understand writing is a much more holistic process that involves our brain doing the work in addition to what we're typing at our desks. It's one that I, that I try to remind myself of, even when I'm not always totally successful. And maybe along the same lines, another piece of advice that I really like that I think comes from Margaret Atwood, although I feel like now I'm not sure if that's right, is about kind of, again, about the physical parts of our work. I think it was like, pain is distracting, do back exercises. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And similarly, like forcing myself to literally get up and stretch and recognizing that our, where we are mentally ties into where we are physically and that, you know, sitting crouched over does not promote, (laughs) promote clarity of thought or, or focus or, or pleasure or, you know, appreciating our writing as a process. And so that one also, I, I used to have that written up over my desk, your back exercises. That's such good practical advice. <laughs> I love it. I'm curious to know who you read for inspiration. Are there other writers you look to? Oh, there are so many. I, I'm, yeah, a very avid fiction reader. And I try not to think of it as explicit inspiration in the sense of, you know, how this will make me a better scholar. I try to do it because I enjoy it. But but I also think there's so much that I pick up from from writing. And in fact, lately, I think some of the inspiring writing that I've been doing, reading that I've been doing, sorry, is like my kids are finally at an age where they're reading these kind of middle grade chapter books that are finally like really, really fun for me to read too. And I've kind of fallen down reading a bunch of these and I'm I'm kind of amazed at some of the incredible artfulness of some of these books that have recently come out. In particular, I, I, I recently read Jasmine Warga's Other Words for Home, uh, which is a middle grade book about a Syrian refugee girl in Ohio. And it's written in, in verse. It's a poem book, but also written accessibly for, you know, 10 year olds. And it's just beautiful. And I spent a lot of time writing out certain passages from the book into my writing journal, feeling like there's so much intense emotion and important ideas in these like five short lines. How does one do that? How do we take that writing? And also Vera Hiranandani is another one that I've been really loving. She writes kind of historical fiction. The one I recently read was uh, How to Find What You're Not Looking For. And it looks at sort of interracial marriage and relationships in the 1960s against the backdrop of the 60s. And again, the way that she's able to narrate that moment really legibly, as well as talking about these kind of racial and political issues at the time. I'm surprised and delighted to find those as kind of a source of inspiration, in addition to more 
traditional scholarly or creative nonfiction writing that I also spend time with and, and enjoy. I have to go back though, because you mentioned copying out passages in your writing journal. <laughs> yeah. How do you use a writing journal? Well, I have a, a journal that I, I would say, if you looked through it, has so many different ways of using it that it's like there's not much consistency. So sometimes I use it for like doing morning pages, which comes from the artist's way and trying to write for 20 minutes every morning to just kind of the goal is to keep your pen moving and not stop and just sort of blur, you know, blurt out whatever is there, both about your writing process and what you're thinking about, as well as whatever comes to mind. And sometimes I find that incredibly helpful. So, so some of my pages are filled with a week streak where I did that every morning and then I fall off for months and don't do that. And then I use it to put in really helpful, I'd say not quotes so much as kind of passages or reflections, either, either on writing itself or on kind of like I said with uh, the book, sort of a sentence or two that's really perfectly crafted that I feel like is able to capture a heart of something. And then I sometimes do just open it up and read it when I'm feeling stuck in a moment or needing a little bit of inspiration. I also try to draw in it. I'm not much of a drawer, but I feel like it's a space of reminding ourselves that creativity can be nudged forward through other mediums and that, you know, sometimes just like letting your brain move with doodles or whatever gives us again that pause, like the walk in the woods that can sometimes do that. And then sometimes I use it for kind of more explicit, like, writing to-do lists or, you know, kind of writing a list of steps that need to be taken between now and next month when I have a conference paper due or something like that. So there's a little bit more of that less artful and more uh, prosaic to-do list stuff too. But yeah, I find it really helpful. Sometimes stuff that I, those things that I write end up on scraps of paper and not in my journal because it's in my bag and I don't feel like getting it from the other room when my cat's in my lap. But I do a lot of that kind of writing of other sorts when I either need to organize my thoughts or just have a moment of doing something that feels incredibly low pressure. I do a lot of note taking of that sort. Before I let you go, can I ask you what you're working on these days? Yeah, I guess two projects that are taking up my attention in different paces and different, very different modes. One in my kind of more scholarly space is a book project I've been working on for quite a while now, five years or something, uh, which is a history of food waste trying to understand kind of origins of so many of the threads that have come together to create a real food waste crisis in in our country today and globally. And so that one is, I'm trying not to push it in terms of how quickly it comes together. I've written some pieces here and there over the years, doing a conference paper on one thread of it. I'm writing about dumpster diving and food not bombs in the 1980s right now for a conference in a couple of weeks. But trying to take it slow, trying to sort of identify what I want that book to be in terms of how broad of an audience, whether it's a trade book or a scholarly book. And then I'm also working on a family history project that also I've been working on for probably more than a decade. I um, have records from my grandmother who was born in 1907 in in Russia, and she lived in Russia in the Soviet Union throughout her whole life. So I've been trying to narrate her diaries um, as well as my dad. He and I also did, he, he also grew up in, in Russia and immigrated to the U.S. in his, in his 40s. And I did oral history with him in the years before he died a decade ago, including his narration of my grand, his mother's diaries and with all of his kind of sidebars about that con- content. So I've been, for about 10 years now, transcribing and translating from Russian and trying to work through 
the really complicated narratives in both my grandmother and my father's life and have been trying to figure out what kind of project it's coming together to be. So it's a lot of Russian history that I was not familiar with, a lot of Russian Jewish immigration history, a lot of history of the South, environmental history. As I said, my dad was a forestry professor and his walks in the woods were really pivotal in shaping him and obviously me. So it's also kind of a story of myself. (laughs) So it's a complicated, many-stranded project that I don't know how much it's going to be something that's just for me and my family and how much that's something I'm going to try to publish in in a way that contributes more clearly to the fields I'm in. I think it could do all of those things and more, but for those reasons, it's been a kind of complicated project to work on, but a delightful one. Dr. Anna Zeta, thank you so much for joining me on Drafting the Past and talking about your writing process. Thank you, Kate. This has been so much fun. I love these conversations. Thank you again to Dr. Anna Zeta for joining me to talk writing. And thanks to you for listening. You can find links to Anna's books and the other things we talked about at draftingthepast.com, where you can also find a complete transcript of the episode. If you've been enjoying Drafting the Past and you want to help me keep it going, you can also donate and subscribe at patreon.com slash draftingthepast. Until next time, happy writing.